Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again I will put my trust in him. And again here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. In conjunction with Hebrews chapter 2, I'd like to read to you the Heidelberg Catechism, page 12 in the back of the Psalter hymnal, Lord's Day 5, which begins a new section of the Catechism, dealing with our deliverance. Lord's Day 5, question 12. According to God's righteous judgment... We deserve punishment, both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claim of his justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we pay this debt ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our guilt every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish another creature for man's guilt. Beside, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal anger against sin and release others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? He must be truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, He must also be true God. Beloved of the Lord, in our recent study of the Bible, as summarized by the Heidelberg Catechism, we have heard the bad news. The bad news that our sin is very great, and that, quote, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both in this world and forever after. End quote. Now, when we humbly believe and confess that indeed we deserve God's righteous judgment, both now and hereafter, when we confess that, and are, then we are prepared to look for a way out of the mess that we've created. And so we, we start a new section of the Catechism about man's deliverance. And tonight I want to consider with you two matters. What kind of deliverance do we seek, and how can we obtain such a deliverance? 
What kind of deliverance do we seek? Well, two things. First of all, we seek escape from his wrath. The question 12 asks, how then can we escape this punishment? That's very much on our minds. There is eternal wrath, and we take seriously the warnings of the Bible that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We know that God became very angry in the time of Noah because man's heart was only evil all the time. And he destroyed the world with a flood. Every living creature that had the breath of life in it was destroyed except for Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. God poured out his wrath on this earth. Later on in the days of Abraham... God came down, so to speak, and went and judged Sodom and Gomorrah and saw that the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah was very great. And he rained down fire and brimstone. And even when Lot's wife looked back longingly, she came under the judgment of God. God's wrath is very real. There were numerous plagues and, uh, on Egypt and afflictions upon the people of God in the wilderness. And in the New Testament, we find Jesus at the end of Matthew 23 weeping over Jerusalem because of the impending calamity that is going to come upon it. And indeed, in the next chapter, Matthew 24, he prophesies that concerning the temple, not one stone will be left upon another. And such a great tribulation shall come upon that city that there hasn't been anything like it before or after. And that prophecy indeed was fulfilled in A.D. 70. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, said that over a million and a half Jews uh, were destroyed in that city at that time when God's wrath fell upon them as a sign, a sign from heaven that Jesus is on the throne that God had placed his servant on the throne and put a rod of iron in his hand so that anyone who does not kiss the sun will be shattered like a piece of pottery and shattered into a thousand pieces. And so Jesus sent his servants out into the world from Pentecost to A.D. 70, 40 years, the traditional time of testing, 40 years during which the gospel was preached throughout the whole Roman world. Paul said, every creature under heaven has heard it in his lifetime. And, and then those who didn't believe, not all of them, but many of them, were brought together in the city of Jerusalem, and that rod of anger came down upon them. Indeed, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And even now, even today, according to Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness because men do not honor God as God or give thanks to Him. Without an infallible prophet, prophet to interpret providence for us, we must be careful not to point to this or that calamity and say that's the wrath of God because oftentimes Christians are involved in it and God works that together for their good and for their salvation. But you can be assured that many of the calamities and much that is suffered in the world today is 
wrath of God already being revealed from heaven against ungodliness. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And if we confess that we deserve His wrath, one of our chief concerns is how can we be delivered from this wrath? That's, that's one part of the salvation that, that we uh, look for, the deliverance that we look for. But there's another part to it, another part that is perhaps even more important. Look at the, second, uh, the last line of the question of, Lord's, of question 12, and return to God's favor. You know, if it only said, how then can we escape this punishment, it might appear that our concern is only for ourselves. That is a very selfish concern. You know, it's like a, a, a convict who has admittedly committed a great crime, a terrible crime. He, he knows he's guilty. He's been gone got on trial, been found guilty, and he's been sentenced to a severe sentence. Even after he has been sentenced, out of self-interest, he'll look for ways to try to get his sentence reduced. He'll try to find some ground of appeal and uh, to to do that. And, uh, of course, he he doesn't have anybody in mind there. He's not concerned about uh, justice. He's not concerned about his victims. He's not concerned about the judge or the prosecutor. He's probably very angry at them. He's only concerned that he might escape punishment. How can I get my sentence reduced? How can I get my sentence uh, uh, nullified or whatever? Uh, uh, that's a very selfish concern. But that's, that's not our concern. Our concern comes to a climax with and return to God's favor. God is the one who sentences us to, to death for our sins. And instead of being angry at the judge who has passed sentence on us and uh, under whose condemnation we, we have lived, we say, you know, he did the right thing. He did a good thing in condemning me, and he's a good God. And I want to live under his blessing. I want to live under his favor. I want his wrath to be turned aside. I want him to smile on me. I want to have a loving relationship with Him. Our concern isn't just for ourselves. Our concern is that we might live in close communion and fellowship with our Heavenly Father and give Him the worship and praise and honor and glory that is due His name. We were created by Him. We were created for Him. We were created that we might live with Him and bring glory to Him through using all the gifts that He has given to us in the creation that He has made for us. And that's what we want. We want to, we want to live with God in a perfect world under His smile, under His blessing. How can we make God love us again? That's the kind of deliverance we want. We want to, yes, escape punishment, but we don't hate the judge. We don't hate the prosecution <laughs> in as much as uh, the, the, pro the charges against us are just. Uh, we're not angry about that, but we, we want to return to God's favor. Now, such an attitude does not come naturally. It's 
the fruit of the Spirit's work. And it's an attitude that should grow the way a couple's love for each other should grow and mature over the years. You know, this idea of returning to God's favor is quite contrary to the way many present the gospel in the world today. Uh, In many circles, Jesus Christ is depicted as someone who just wants to be your friend if you'll only let him. The only obstacle, the only obstacle between you and God is your hard heart. Uh, And uh, therefore, uh, we shouldn't worry about God. God is, uh, uh, you know, like a a great Santa Claus. He's just all jolly and love and he just wants to be your friend. Just let him be your friend. That's that's a typical uh, presentation of the gospel in sadly in too many churches today. But what the catechism is teaching us and what the scriptures also teach is that God is terribly angry. He is a wrathful God. And he has good reason, just wrath, righteous anger. And in order for us to be saved, he has to be propitiated. He has to be satisfied. Well, how can we obtain such a deliverance? Well, the Catechism tells us in the first answer, basically all in one line, his justice must be satisfied. His justice must be satisfied. He's not just going to overlook things. He's not just going to say, oh, let bygones be bygones. The only way to appease his anger is to satisfy the demands of justice. You know, the the boys and girls, they, they know that if they're playing uh, a game with a a ball and uh, the ball goes through the neighbor's window and breaks the window Uh, the neighbor is going to have a big frown on his face and he might be quite angry and the only way you're going to get that neighbor to smile again is if you fix the window at No inconvenience to the owner of the window. He expects you to pay for it. He expects you to get the job done right and to get it done quickly. And if if the just demands of the owner of the window are met, if his window is restored to where it should be, if uh, you do the right thing, then he'll smile at you again. He may also ask you to play a little bit further away, but uh, he'll smile at you again. Uh, You have satisfied justice, and that's how it is with God as well. When the full demands of justice are satisfied, then reconciliation with God can take place. You know, there's two clear proofs in the Bible that God demands that justice be satisfied. One of clear proof is the existence of hell. Uh, hell wouldn't exist if God could just say, let bygones be bygones. Uh, no, the Bible tells us that there is everlasting punishment for those who hate God and who refuse to believe the good news, who reject Jesus Christ. There is everlasting destruction for them. And contrary to the opinion of some, Jesus has more to say about the existence of hell and the suffering of hell than many of the Old Testament prophets do. Uh, The Bible makes clear that hell exists because God is a righteous judge who must punish evil. 
The other proof of the existence of uh, the, or the, of the, the other proof of the truth that that God has to be satisfied is the death of Christ. You know, if if it were possible for your sins and my sins to be atoned for and for God to be uh, appeased in any other way than Jesus descending into hell, suffering the agonies of hell on the cross and throughout his life, if there were any other way, you can be sure that God would not have subjected his son to such terrible suffering. God loves his son and does not willingly, for no good reason, subject him to such agonies of hell. He did it because, in order for our sins to be forgiven, justice had to be satisfied. Now the Catechism asks, can we pay this debt ourselves? Can we pay the debt? And, of course, the answer is no, we can't pay pay the debt. Actually, we increase our, our guilt every day. You know, King Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, made a, a big mistake when he didn't thoroughly annihilate the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a wicked people, and God judged them and righteously condemned them and told Saul to carry out sentence against the Amalekites, every man, woman, and child, all their livestock, but... Uh, Saul, uh, he didn't do it. And so he was guilty. And he had a guilty conscience about it. And he thought, well, maybe I can make amends. And so he went out and he destroyed the Gibeonites. Those were the people who, with whom Joshua and the leaders of Israel made a treaty. When they shouldn't have made a treaty with them, they should have consulted with God about uh, the Gibeonites. But uh, they gave their word. They wouldn't destroy the Gibeonites and then found out they they were people that were supposed to have been destroyed. Well, Saul says, well, they should have been destroyed. So I'll, I'll prove my love to God. I'll make up for what I've done wrong, but I'll destroy the Gibeonites. Only he just made matters worse. You know, the Israelite leaders had made a vow not to destroy the Israelites, and now he breaks that vow, and so he's guilty of a, another sin. And, and the truth of the catechism is certainly not. Actually, we increase our guilt every day, and that's what Saul did. He increased his guilt. You know, the Pharisees thought that they could perform righteous deeds, that they could, uh, by their righteous deeds, win God's favor. And you remember the man, uh, the Pharisee, who stood on the street corner and said, I thank you, God, I'm not like other men. I tithe and I keep the Sabbath and I pray and I do all these good works. Did he go home justified? Did his good works give him an in with God? No, it was the publican who didn't dare to raise his eyes to heaven who cried out have mercy on me a sinner it was he who went home justified our good works are not sufficient our good works even our best works are polluted with sin and therefore again we just increase our guilt 
Paul wrote a letter to the Galatian churches, the churches in the region of Galatia, and uh, chided them for so quickly turning from the gospel because there is this tendency in, in the church in every age, and including in our age and in our circles, this tendency to fall back into legalism, to fall back into to the idea that, you know, my standing with God is based on my behavior. And... Uh, the Galatian churches fell into that error, and the letter was written to them to uh, reprove them for that error, and that letter has been preserved to remind us again and again that uh, even though we uh, confess that uh, we're saved by grace, we have to confess that we're also sanctified by grace and, and not by our good works. They They don't keep us in God's favor. It's not like God accepts us, and then we have to... Uh, earn the rest of it ourselves. No, it's all of grace. Our good works uh, count for nothing regarding our acceptance with God. Psalm 49, verse 7 says, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. You can't redeem your own life. You can't redeem the life of another. But then the catechism asks this other question, can, can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? And that's, that may sound like a strange question, unless you know the Old Testament, that, that God had ordained that creatures be sacrificed in place of humans, and that the priest confess the sins of the people while laying his hands on, on the animal, and then slaughtering the animal, and laying it on the altar, and sprinkling its blood on the mercy seat. And uh, then announcing to the people that their sins have been paid for. Uh, Can the blood of bulls and goats wash away our sins? Well, God did institute that sacrificial system, but he did it not because the blood of bulls and goats can wash away our sins. He did it rather as a continual reminder to the people of their sin and their need for cleansing. He introduced the idea of a substitute making atonement for them, but the repetition showed that the animals were not really good enough to get the job done. And the whole system was designed to create a longing for a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice that would make them clean, for which indeed Jesus came into the world. And John said of him, John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrificial lamb, the once-for-all sacrifice. Well, then, is there no hope at all? Yes, there is hope. There is hope because God has provided a deliverer, a deliverer who is truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures. And that is indeed Jesus Christ. We read of him in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about Jesus or the Son of God becoming one with us, uh, becoming our brother, uh, taking on human flesh. Chapter 1 is all about the greatness of the Son. You know, who he, uh, he made the worlds, He who made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He Himself, when he himself had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's saying there that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of, of God's person. And, and, and Jesus upholds all things by the word of His power. Uh, God says to him, you are my son. Uh, He says, uh, let all the angels worship him. 
it says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. God the Father says to God the Son, your throne, O God, is forever. That's chapter 1. This great Son of God, who is the, uh, the image and the expressed image of, uh, of the Father. But then chapter 2 is about this Son uh, becoming one of us, coming down and coming near. We call this the incarnation, the putting on of flesh. The eternal second person of the Trinity, the one who was with the Father from all creation, the one through whom all things were made, and without him was not anything made, he became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down and he came near. And he did it in order to suffer and die in our place. You know, every time I meditate on this, I am amazed at how committed Jesus is, how committed he is. Commitment is, is something that is in rare supply uh, in our world today. Uh, people willing to commit themselves to the point of serving others to their own hurt. That is, you commit to helping somebody, even though it's not only going to inconvenience you, but you, it might hurt you to, to serve others. That kind of commitment is, is something that is becoming increasingly rare. We see it, for example, in common everyday relations. You may meet a neighbor, or you may meet a, someone where you work, and it becomes evident to you that this is a needy person. This is a person who could easily become a leech, someone who could bleed you, someone who could ask favors of you, who, who will probably be asking favors of you, borrow things from you, maybe even come and try to get money from you. And you say, you know, I think I better just keep my distance, you know. Or then there's the person uh, who you, you greet casually and, and uh, you say, how you doing? And he pauses and he says, well, you know, I'm really not doing very well. And inside you begin to curl up and withdraw. You say, that, that's not the answer I wanted to hear. I, I, I don't want to, to hear this man's troubles. I don't want him to lay his troubles on me. Uh, that, that's, that's something that we've, we've all experienced to, to a certain extent, that there are these, these people out there that we just don't want to commit to. We want to give in to them and, and make ourselves vulnerable to them. I think that this is one of the reasons why more and more we see couples uh, living together without the benefit of marriage, because marriage is about commitment. It's about making yourself vulnerable. I remember years and years ago, maybe 30, 40 years ago, before I was ordained, uh, uh, reading in the banner an article about a man, uh, about a couple who... Shortly after they were married, the wife became uh, gravely ill. I think it was with polio and had to live the rest of her life in an iron lung. And this young husband quit his work. And for the rest of that woman's life, I think it was around 30 years, he took care of her. You know, when they got married, that's not what he was expecting. 
Uh, she was allowed to come out of the iron lung like an hour a day, you know. And the rest of the time she's there and he has to feed her, bathe her, clothe her, do everything for her. That's not what a man expects from his wife. <laughs> but he understood that marriage is commitment. Today you have couples, they come together and they say, well, you know, this relationship has benefits and it has uh, uh, obligations. And if the obligations ever outweigh the benefits, I'm out of here. You know, I, I'm in here for myself and for what it can go, give me. And if, it be, if you become too needy, if, if you demand more of me than I'm willing to give, then the relationship is over. They're not willing to make commitments. And I see the same sort of thing with regard to people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're content to never become a member of the church. I can get the service on the radio. Why should I become a member of the church? I get all the spiritual food I need by listening to the service on the radio without any obligation, without any commitment. Forgetting that the Lord that you profess to believe in is the same Lord who gave to the church some to be pastors, some to be elders, some to be teachers, some to be deacons, and who commanded the church to do this in remembrance of me, to have the sacraments and to have uh, to to act like a body that is connected to each other, where each part serves one another. He doesn't want Christians to live in isolation by themselves. He wants them to come together and not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I don't want to make people feel guilty who have good reasons not to come, health reasons in particular, um, infirmities of age or COVID or whatever, but uh, where there is no good reason. Many times I fear it's that, that desire. I don't want commitment. You know, if I join the church, then there's committees to join. There's ushers. There's sound booth. There's uh, uh, deacon serving as deacon. They'll ask me to be a deacon. They'll ask me to be an elder. They'll, uh, they'll, they'll ask me to promise to submit to the admonition and discipline of the elders, and I have to open up my life to them and uh, allow them to come and visit me once a year to see how I'm doing. And uh, They don't want that commitment. But that's all part of, of what Christ has ordained for his church. You can't just pick and choose and say, I want the forgiveness of sins, but I don't want anything else that Christ commands for his people. He says, if you love me, you keep all of my commandments, not just the ones you like. Commitment. Well, we have a Savior. We have a Savior who is committed. Committed to death. He was in heaven, high and lifted up, dwelling in unapproachable light, enjoying fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. And he saw a needy people, a hurting people. And he committed to getting involved. And so God became a man in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. And because of that deliverance, indeed has been accomplished for the people of God. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that you loved us and sent your son Jesus for us. We thank you, Father, for all the uh, uh, work that Christ has done to save us. We thank you that he is fully God and fully man and therefore able to uh, uh, do what we cannot do for ourselves. 
We pray that uh, our hearts may be drawn to him in love and in grateful obedience. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.